Greetings, Ryan. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Uh, you and the wife and the dog are doing okay? Yeah, how about you? Yeah, I guess as a writer, you're kind of used to lockdowns, aren't you? <laughs> is that kind of... I mean... <laughs> is that how you live or like, you know what I mean? Like you have deadlines and like you got to get it done. Yeah, but I also, it turns out I do miss people more than I thought. Oh, that's really sweet. What is it about people you miss? This has nothing to do with the interview. I'm just adjusting the levels. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I miss seeing unfamiliar faces. Mm -hmm. I realized I did a Zoom call the other day where people I didn't know on it. And I was like, oh, people I don't know in a large group. <laughs> I haven't had that for a while. Yeah. This is nice. Mm -hmm. With the, I've noticed with the the lockdown and like, uh, like everyone's kind of talking to the same people that they know. And so nobody has mm -hmm. any cool stories now because nobody's done anything. Like nobody's ran into yeah. somebody or went to a cool screening or did something. You know what I mean? Like there's no small talk now, <laughs> right? There's nothing because none of us have done anything. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I mean, good given the circumstances. Mm-hmm. But still. Yeah. It's just always like, do you, do you like stuff? I like stuff. And then that's kind of where the conversation <laughs> goes. And then it dies after that. I do like stuff. All right. Yo, welcome to my summer lair. I am Sammy, a splendid specimen, Yunnan. And here's the thing. A lot of people have heard of Kurt Vonnegut, but not as many people have read Kurt Vonnegut. Or perhaps you just slept through him in high school English. That's what that class was for, right? That was always a good nap. Thankfully, there's a graphic novel adaptation. Hopefully, the first of many that'll jerk Kurt Vonnegut into the lives of avid readers. This classic illustrated style graphic novel adaptation is drawn by Albert Montez and kind of sort of not really written by Ryan North. He explains his role better as this conversation unfolds. It's good to have him back on the program. The adaptation of Slaughterhouse-Five or The Children's Crusade at Duty Dance with Death, a kind of science fiction-ish infused anti-war novel of course, by Kurt Vonnegut, first published in 1969. Due to the publishing date, many readers and critics thought Vonnegut was being critical of the Vietnam War. However, dude was attempting to translate his disturbing World War II experiences. And like to me, due to my timeline, this all tapped into that classic 80s dread, uh, Russia and America playing chicken with nukes, good old-fashioned mutually assured destruction. Those were good times. Which is why, as an anti-war novel, and now a graphic novel, it's timeless. You hope war is past tense, the way characters in Star Trek movies and TV shows talk about their past. Or more directly for us, like looking back at a high school photo. Like, embarrassed for your haircut or your outfit. Like, you hope war is past tense. Actually, hope is the ideal place to start this conversation because of two things. One, I hope Ryan North has been contacted by time travelers. And two, I hope Ryan North is good at making London fogs. Oh, I hope you stick around. We are going to have some fun. So are you ready to roll? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, but before I ask about uh, your writing and your work, um, I got to ask for an update on your London fog experiments. Like, how is that going? <laughs> Have you perfected your London Fog recipe? Because London yes. Fog is the uh, breakfast of champions. 
I have been uh, live tweeting my way through trying to figure out how to make a good London Fog and ranking them. I start with a 4 out of 10, mm-hmm. and I'm up to an 11 out of 10. I am judging myself, but it turns out, you know, it's a, it's a sugary tea drink, and mm-hmm. by adding maple syrup, that was something that helped me get over the top a little bit. Oh, that is a good flourish. I've never had that. Like, I've had London Fog, but yeah. never with maple syrup. Yeah, I had a barista contact me saying, I've never seen maple syrup in London Fog. And I was like, you got to get on my level. This is how I've been doing it. Okay. Well, hopefully when all the lockdown and everything's done, I can drop by and then try one of these uh, London Fogs and give you some honest feedback. Well, I worry because I'm making them exclusively for myself. My wife doesn't like them. And so I'm making, you know, really good London Fogs for Ryan North. But I don't know (laughs) how much I'm drifting from reality. I'm about to be like, what is this? What are you doing? Right, and that's why you need the honest feedback from somebody, like you know. There you go. Because uh, you could always just live in that like fictional world that you've created. It's a great little world where I'm just really good at making this one beverage. <laughs> okay. Um, My exact specifications. As long as you're happy. Yeah. So your latest project, Slaughterhouse Five, mm-hmm. the very last page says people aren't supposed to look back. I'm certainly not going to do it anymore. But unfortunately, I do want to look back at your previous book, which is How to Invent Everything, a survival guide for the stranded time traveler, uh, since we're talking about living in your own little world. So did you get sure. any responses from like wayward time travelers? Did they find the book helpful or did they find it useful? Um, none yet, but I figure they're all saving it for one day where they'll, they'll all show up together. So it's something to look forward to. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that is nice. Well, okay, so your latest project is a graphic novel adaptation of Slaughterhouse-Five, mm-hmm. also known as like the Children's Crusade, a Duty Dance with Death. And mm-hmm. uh, it's obviously written by Kurt Vonnegut, uh, first published in 1969. So not that we need to box the book into a genre, but like what genre is this novel? Like there's time travel, Kurt Vonnegut actually makes a cameo appearance. Like is this surrealism or what is this? Um, I don't know. When I read the book first uh, as a young man, what struck me about it was how uh, bold it was. <laughs> it didn't fit into these in these preconceived boxes. Like, if you consider it sci-fi, it might not be very satisfying sci-fi because, you know, there's aliens and spaceships and abduction, but there's also a lot of, you know, really real stuff about war and World War II and the mm-hmm. firebombing of Dresden. It's not biography or autobiography, but there is Kurt makes an appearance several times. He talks about his own experience in the war. So it's kind of its own thing. And I think that's what that's what connected me to it early on. I think it's what a lot of people have uh, loved about it over the years. The reason it's such a timeless book is that it it speaks to a bunch of different people in a bunch of different ways that you don't normally see done in novels. Yeah, the, because I mentioned that it was, it was published in 69, people associated with Vietnam, but it was writing about World War II and his real-life experiences in World War II. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So how did Kurt Vonnegut come into little Ryan North's life? Was that before or after the <laughs> London Fogs? Uh, it was, gosh, I guess before. I got an email from uh, an editor I'd worked with at Boom, where I did the Adventure Time comics, you know what, it's actually a text message. He texted me. Shannon Waters texted me and said, do you like Kurt Vonnegut? And I wrote back and said, I love Kurt Vonnegut. Why do you ask? And then I got in touch with uh, my editor in the book there. And we uh, basically had a big, long conversation about Slaughterhouse, about Kurt Vonnegut in general and what adaptations could be and what we want to do. And I thought, you know, I'd love to adapt a Kurt Vonnegut story into a comic. But 
I don't want to do Slaughterhouse-Five because that's the biggest, most important book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she was like, we're doing Slaughterhouse-Five. <laughs> and I was like, okay, yeah. okay, let me think about this. Let me try to figure it out. And uh, one of the first things I did was I went out and bought a new copy of the book with the largest margins I could find and then just wrote notes in those margins of, you know, this has to go in, This has, we don't want to put this part in, this is how you can maybe adapt this scene. So I had this really big marked up book and then I did a pitch for the comic, which was sent to the Vonnegut estate, which is basically, here's what the comic book would look like. I want to make some changes, but not, not huge changes. The biggest one, I think, is probably uh, the character in the book of Kilgore Trout, who in the prose novel is described as a failed novelist now writing like science fiction stories. In our book, he's fallen even further. Now he's writing comic books, <laughs> the <laughs> lowest possible medium, which is fun for a meta joke, but also like, it lets us see his stories and they're rendered as these wonderful sort of like EC golden age style comic mm-hmm. books that really sort of, it makes Trout feel at home in the medium. And the whole point of this project, my main goal was if someone had never heard of Slaughterhouse-Five somehow and read this comic, they wouldn't put the book down at the end and say, oh, what a good adaptation. They put it down and say, oh, what a good comic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I need to stand alone and feel like it was at home in the medium of comics and the artist, Albert Montes, did such, such an incredible job with it that yeah. I kind of feel bad even, like, talking to you about the book because <laughs> I didn't write it. Kurt Vonnegut wrote it, and Albert drew it. I'm just the guy in the middle <laughs> who gets to take a bunch of the credit. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a few things there I, I want to unpack because, like, you said you want to make a couple of changes, like minor changes, obviously. And that's got to be weird, too, because this is a Kurt Vonnegut novel where the main character kind of rewrites his own reality with a fantasy life involving aliens. So that, isn't that kind of like meta-revisionism or? I mean, I can see that argument. My, my thing was more just like Kurt Vonnegut was a great humanist and he didn't want to hurt people. I feel like that's, that's fair. That comes through in a lot of his work. But, you know, over time, language evolves. And there's terms he uses in Slaughterhouse-Five that we wouldn't use today because... They're hurtful terms. So mm-hmm. changing those is felt like a no-brainer. Kurt would probably do it himself if he was doing this adaptation in 2020. Um, so it was less of like, I'm Ryan North and I'm here to fix Kurt Vonnegut <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and more. Yeah. I don't want anything to distract from the genius of this book. So I'm going to tweak these small things so that to a modern audience, perhaps seeing this the first time, it won't pull them out and say, oh, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> was expecting to see that word there. That's a yeah. surprising term, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially because I, I referenced the aliens and they don't believe in free will. And that's got to be a lot like adapting a Kurt Vonnegut novel into a comic book, like a graphic novel. You know what I mean? There isn't a lot of free yeah. will. Well, it's, it's, it's funny because I've talked to other writers years ago where we kind of had this <laughs> this thing we called Kurt Vonnegut disease, where if you read Kurt Vonnegut's story, and then you try to write something, you end up sounding like Kurt Vonnegut. It's such a distinctive and fun voice, mm-hmm. and you can't do that. You're ripping off Kurt Vonnegut. Yes. <laughs> you're not, not allowed to do that, but when you're adapting his work, mm-hmm. uh, I got to lean into it and sort of do my best Kurt impression. And there, there's places in the book where I had to expand what was there. Like, he'll often have, uh, Vonnegut will often summarize a Kilgore Trout story, tell you sort of the gist of what happened, but to turn that into an actual comic within the comic, I had to make that a full story, but still have feel like Kurt Vonnegut feeling like he's writing Kilgore Trout. So it was uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of being unstuck in time, kind of getting to lean into, you know, doing your best Kurt Vonnegut impression as a writer. 
and not getting in trouble for it, which is a fun change. <laughs> you get to get away with it, unlike those Scooby Doo people, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is cool. What about humor then? Like, you're known obviously for humor, and then Kurt Vonnegut has kind of like a black humor satire. Like, mm -hmm. were you worried that those two, your style of humor and his style of humor would necessarily mesh or were you guys kind of in sync? I know he's kind of gone, but like, were you guys yeah. in sync? Um, I mean, I wouldn't have, part of the, part of the fear of doing the book, the great fear of doing the book is that I don't want to be the guy who screws up Kurt Vonnegut because I love his work and I love Slaughterhouse-Five. And so it was never the idea of, you know, I'm going to write <laughs> my own version of Slaughterhouse-Five and punch up the jokes some, it was more, <laughs> I want to translate this book, yeah. almost like translation, I want to translate, translate this book into a new medium, and I want it to feel at home there. And so, I mean, there are some places in the book where there are sort of new little things that I've added, because the comic medium demanded it, and mm -hmm. some of those are jokes, but it's not like, I'm not doing a punch-up job, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm reading, doing his black humor, which I love, mm -hmm. and, and translating as best I can. Yeah, and the humor is important. That's why I brought it up because cause some of the stuff we talked about a little bit already, which is like that this is an anti-war novel. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want him to make it sound like it's serious or like dour book. Like there is a lot of sarcasm. There is a lot of black humor that's going on mm -hmm. in the midst of all the circumstances and World War II and everything else. Yeah, some of some of the punchlines are... <laughs> I call, When I was revising the book, uh, making my notes in the margins, I call them wham lines. Like they hit. <laughs> Yeah, and these are lines I want to include in the trend in the adaptation. And one that comes to mind is um, when Billy is looking at the Serenity Prayer that you know God grant me the knowledge. It all goes the knowledge to know what I can change, what I can't, the wisdom to tell the difference. Yeah. And then Kurt writes, among the things that Billy Pilgrim could not change were the past, the present, and the future. That's a punchline, <laughs> and that is incredibly bleak. <laughs> it's, yes. it's two things at once. Yeah. And like, I wanted to include that in the comic. I have sort of a beat panel before it, so you really get to have that line hit as hard as it can in the lower right of the page before you turn it. Mm -hmm. And it's it's that sort of stuff where I'm like, this is a great line. I don't want to change it, but you can make it hit even harder in this new medium by pacing the page around it, so that it, it just lands as hard as it possibly can. Yeah, and that's also, I think, one of the interesting aspects of the graphic novel and the novel itself, right, is that the, the graphic novel is in on the joke, too. Like, it's aware that it's a graphic novel. Is that, mm -hmm. is that accurate? Yeah, um, we, we open the book by saying, you know, this is a graphic novel adaptation of Slaughterhouse-Five. Both books are very similar, only ours has more pictures, <laughs> which yes. is such a dismissive way <laughs> yeah. to describe a, a comic, but also, like, it... I feel like for those of us who love comics, we're familiar with how the medium is sort of disparaged in North America for decades. And we know it's great. And like Slaughterhouse-Five, I didn't write it, so I can say it's great. Mm -hmm. And putting that in comics sort of like has some fun with it, with the idea of like the history of this book, of this medium being considered juvenile, dismissible. And yet here is one of the great anti-war stories in this medium. And now you have to square that circle. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> recognize comics can be good. Yeah. And the fact, too, like that I referenced that the book was from 1969, as you said, it's an anti-war novel. It's really strange because now there's there's some sense of what we do in terms of like when we look back at something like World War II and we see the mass slaughter, 
it's almost embarrassing like when we wore belt bottom jeans or like the way we look back at a school photo you know what i mean like with our <laughs> haircut it's like what were we thinking that was crazy and i'm like like it's almost like we couldn't never go back to that again but that's the i mean i hope so i hope so too but that's also seems to be like the the warning of the novel right like this is like could be potentially present tense because we're always potentially uh, able to do something that drastic it's the joy of the tragedy of the book i think is that it is this uh, heartfelt and effective argument against war but it's also a book that is as relevant today as the day it was published so like clearly not a lot has changed about the way we humans run our affairs but i mean you look at kurt he's he's pessimistic but he also believes in humans mm-hmm. <laughs> he believes in a better tomorrow and it's it's this i think it makes for really compelling reading if you're if you're too bleak the thing is just depressing but slaughterhouse five is not depressing despite the fact it talks about all these horrible things and 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 thousands and thousands of people being killed there's still some value in being a human being in there which is i mean it's a neat trick to pull off right yeah and that i think that was what fascinated the aliens right like uh the main character billy pilgrim he was like walking around all naked and he had a big wang and he's uh, like this incredible <laughs> human specimen right and the aliens were just fascinated and loved it yeah they don't even they don't know that he's not this perfect human they suppose he's amazing because he's the only one they've seen yeah and that, that's is... yeah which is what you're talking about like it's that tension where like because the book jumps around uh partly because billy pilgrim is quote-unquote a time traveler but also like as you see the atrocities of world war II, he is this beautiful human being according to the aliens and so it's like yeah we're capable of nastiness but we're also capable of great goodness as well mm-hmm. yeah i mean part of the, the challenge of doing a graphic novel version of that is to translate it and the, the thing that albert did that was so uh, effective is that he draws these characters and they look like like real people there you feel very empathetic towards them and so even like they're the worst people in the story like roland weary is this <laughs> horrible person but you still feel bad when he's dying because you're seeing this child this mm-hmm. boy uh die this horrible death and like the i think the advantage we get in comics is that you're seeing these faces all the time and they're drawn in a cartoony style so it's the emotions are almost heightened which helps you relate to them it's the same way like we'll feel almost more empathy with a, a wolf or a dog with its leg caught in a trap trying to get free that that's emotionally affecting more so than almost more so sometimes than say like a human who's walking with a limp because yeah. they got their foot caught around like this we have almost more room in her heart for these things that look cute and not that albert draws these characters as cute he draws them as human mm-hmm. but there's that element of connection in comics that is almost beyond what we see in real life which i think helps make all these characters feel real and and lived in yeah the equivalent is like a sitcom right when you keep seeing like a certain kitchen or a certain living room uh, right so then after a certain point it just feels like your own home like you know exactly mm. where that couch is <laughs> you know what i mean like you know where everything is and you're like comfortable in that environment uh, because you've just yeah. seen it so much. Yeah, absolutely. So what was it like then uh, in terms of, you just mentioned uh, Albert, like, so what was it like working with him in terms of like, 
putting this together because like when you were writing like Squirrel Girl, for example, right? That had like mm-hmm. established Marvel Universe characters. So you had a shorthand, right? Whenever you're working with an artist. But this is like you're almost uh, writing it and drawing it from scratch in a sense. I know there are illustrations in the novel, but a lot of it, you guys had to do a lot of the heavy lifting to figure out visually how it would look. Yeah, um, I, I had the advantage that Vonnegut described a bit of what these characters look like. I could just type that out into my script and say, <laughs> this is this is what we have for Billy. This is what we have for Roland, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I know that Albert did some character sketches which went to the Vonnegut estate, and they were all approved pretty much without changes, except for one of them, the uh, Montana Wild Hack character. She had some tweaks because I believe it was uh, Kurt's son, Mark, who said she was based on this person, this real life person, that we just made her look more like that, just to tie in more with what Kurt had envisioned. But it was very easy uh, working with Albert. We got around really well, <laughs> really quickly. Uh, I'm not sure how normal that is. It's always been my experience, which is great. I feel like I'm very lucky that way where I'm, yeah. I get these people. Because I wrote the script without, what, no, without knowing who the artist would be. We didn't have an artist yet, which is a hard way to write a script because you don't know who you're writing for. Yeah, how long um, did it take it, you to it write out. it? To like adapt it? Because um, you said you're writing notes in the margin, right? So. Yeah, I think if you went, well, how do you <laughs> how do you mark time, right? Like the time spent on it, there were revisions, um, but the bulk of the work, the main part of the adaptation, probably took about two months, okay. working full time on it, yeah. which doesn't sound like a lot, yeah. but it was a lot. <laughs> yeah. Was your approach, like, because you did, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, um, like, you remix Romeo and Juliet, right? With, as a choosable uh, path adventure? Path adventure, yeah. yeah. Did you have a similar approach in terms of that, like, in terms of this, in terms of Slaughterhouse-Five, in terms of your scope and your approach, I guess? Um, they're very different, I think, looking back on it, because I'm so respectful of Vonnegut, while Shakespeare feels like he's a fun goof <laughs> in a weird sense, because... Uh, Shakespeare is this writer who is so ridiculously canonized in our culture, like the best writer that ever was, that even, you know, daring to adapt his work into an interactive game book feels sacrilegious. Mm-hmm. And that's fun. Like, that feels <laughs> like you shouldn't be doing this. This is a bad idea. Yeah. Well, adapting Vonnegut into a graphic novel felt like this is a good idea. This is something that I want to see happen. So I felt, like I think I said before, I didn't want to be the guy who screws up Vonnegut. I was very aware of this is something that needs to be done respectfully and thoughtfully and carefully and also do a good job (laughs) if you want it to be a good book. When Bruce Lee died, I know this is a weird transition, but when Bruce Lee died, his wife and widow, uh, Linda Lee, was all of a sudden in charge of this estate and she had to figure out how to do like t-shirts and posters and kind of keep this legacy of Bruce Lee alive. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, mm-hmm. we've seen that with like Elvis as well. Like how do you keep Graceland and Elvis and all those kind of things alive? And is this part of this, uh, one of the reasons for adapting this, was this kind of like a way to kind of connect with new readers and get uh, Kurt Vonnegut into the minds and hearts of new people? I mean, I hope so. I hope it does. Um, I, <laughs> like I said, I wouldn't have done the book if I didn't love Vonnegut. Mm-hmm. And I think the hope of any book is that it reaches an, an audience and a new audience that may not have considered it. And the thing about graphic novels that, you know, is terrific is that it's, they're so accessible and they're so uh, inviting, right? Like you hold, I always say you hold up a page of text next to an open page of comics and your eye is going to go to the page of comics. It's an inherently fun medium. Mm-hmm. And so like Slaughterhouse-Five is a book that 
I was never assigned to read in school, but I know it happens a lot in America. Like it's one of the books you read in high school. And that's hard, right? Any yeah. book that you're literally assigned as homework, it's going to be hard to get that into the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hope people who maybe read the book in high school and didn't really connect to it because they were too young or because it was literally assigned by the state for them to read, um, reading a graphic novel version, you know, it might make you read the original prose version again. It might highlight things in the story that you didn't necessarily see or see in that same way the first time. There's a lot that a graphic novel does differently than prose. And I feel like part of the thrill for me of this book was seeing how Slaughterhouse-Five fits into that mode and sort of what comes out the other end. Because like you say, it's, it's a book that's unstuck in time with scenes hopping all over the place. But comics, it's kind of the same thing, right? Like you turn the page of a comic book, and you can be in a different time on that next page. Mm-hmm. It just, it's a medium really good at blurring time and space and mixing them together. Meanwhile. So, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like it's not that Kurt wrote it as a comic or even ever wrote a comic, but this, in the end, uh, in retrospect, this was a, as, as afraid as I was, this was, I feel like, probably a good book to adapt into comics because this, this structure of the story and the nature of the medium travel so much along the same lines. That trepidation that you have or that fear, of, and I know your fear is based on like screwing up uh, Vonnegut, but like, did that trepidation extend into the fact that this is also considered a dangerous book? It's been banned from school libraries and like got ruled on by the Supreme Court. Like, It's created quite a bit of a fuss. So was there any sort of trepidation into going into a project like this? No. <laughs> I feel like the, the boards that, you know, ban the book, most of them did it further in the past. And like, you know, it's not, I don't feel like there's anything in this that I personally would say is bad or deserves <laughs> to be censored. So being fully on board with people should be able to read whatever they want. Uh, I wasn't afraid of anything there. And I haven't heard anyone saying, you know, how dare you adapt this filth? <laughs> I feel yes. like, Hopefully we have a, we as a culture have moved past that and can now enjoy Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah, I mean, all, oftentimes when you go back and you're like read it and you're like, what was the big deal with this? Like, what was the yeah? What was so upsetting <laughs> that like you know? But I've also seen like uh, a couple of um, uh, librarians in the the states they banned um, Bone, the the comic book Bone. Uh, Jeff Why? Smith, because they felt that Bone was too close to Boner, which was then a sexual reference. And then that would then, like, I guess nobody's thinking of the children. Who would that, that says more about the people banning it than anything about the text. Yeah, and I'm like, <laughs> like, that one's, like, that one's made for, like, the youth. Like, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta <laughs> let that one go. Like, you can't yeah, win all really these fights. Revealing more about yourself there. Yeah. I was like, until they even made that connection, I was like, oh, I didn't even, like, that never even, like, I'm lowbrow humor, too. So, but I'm like, I didn't even saw that one coming. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. So the the graphic novel is out now, and people are are digging it. Like, have like I asked you of like you got uh, contacted by time travelers, but this one is I'm hoping you got a little bit more f- reader feedback or people have talked to you. Like, so people seem to be digging the book and connecting with the book. Yeah, yeah. The reviews I've seen have been you know overwhelmingly positive, which is terrific. Like, <laughs> you didn't screw it up. <laughs> <And> normally, <laughs> no, I didn't. But normally, I yeah. feel like like if I'm talking about a book, a comic book that I wrote, I will have some. Uh, modesty about it because 
it's something I wrote and, you know, you can't accept too much praise, blah, 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 Canadian, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But with this, I feel like, like, since, since Kurt Vonnegut did so much of it and I love him and Albert did so much of it and I love him that, you know, me saying, Hey, this, this book is really good. This is a great book. <laughs> it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like I'm complimenting myself. It feels like I'm complimenting these other people who did so much to make this a really incredible graphic novel. So it's been really well, well received. It sold out in two days <laughs> it came out in September and the oh, wow. new print just, yeah, I mean, it's a good problem to have, but it was frustrating because I'd be like, here's a new book. You can't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could but, give you a uh, There's five. a new print. That's cool. Yeah. There's a new print that came out uh, two weeks ago. And so the book's now back in stock in bookstores and stuff. So you can check it out at your lesser. Yeah. So when Boom approached you, as you said, the editor texted you and was like, yo, let's do some Vonnegut stuff. And then you said, uh, like, I don't want to do Slaughterhouse-Five. You came out of the other end now and you're like, you're glad you chose Slaughterhouse-Five rather than some of the other ones like Breakfast of Champions or something? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, chose is the wrong word. They said, we're going to do Slaughterhouse-Five. You okay. can write Voluntold? it. Said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I didn't bail on it at that point. I yeah. mean, it's... I'm really glad the book is connecting with people. I'm glad that it, it is capturing the same uh, feeling you get when you read Vonnegut's prose novel. And I'm glad that it can stand alone. Even people who have never read any Vonnegut is still, it doesn't feel like, you know, a photocopy of a book with some pictures added in. It feels like this is its own text that's telling a very similar story in a wildly different way. Is the plan then to do either through you or through Boom to do more adaptations like this? Like of Kurt's work? I mean, <laughs> Albert and I have said we'd love to do it. So it's sort of up to everyone in the vast space above us who deals with rights and estates and everything else. But we had a really great time. Uh, it's a, it's a weird thing to say. We had a great time adapting this book about how horrible <laughs> war is and the utility. That's why I brought up but, the humor. Like, yeah. Because <laughs> I know it does sound like a really serious, dark book. And there are definitely moments of that. Like Billy Pilgrim doesn't always have the best or easiest life. Um, no, but it's it's a fun book. It's a funny book at the same time. It's, it's that, that sort of tension and contrast that makes it so interesting to me. Mm-hmm. See, I would, I would love to do a, another one if possible. You have, I guess, the inevitable question would be which one, though? Do you have a preference if you had a choice? Oh, gosh. If you weren't voluntold again? Um, I feel like if we're doing Wildest Dream stuff, then I just start with this first novel and go from there (laughs) all the way through until we catch up with Slaughterhouse and move past it. How did you start reading Kurt Vonnegut? I got uh, my friend uh, Priya sent me a book in first year undergrad, sent me Slaughterhouse 5. And I remember sitting in my car in winter, I was waiting for someone and reading the book and putting it down at one point because I was like, this is great. <laughs> this is, I was not expecting something this good and being like almost physically shocked by what the book was doing mm-hmm. and then reading all the other stuff from there. Um, she was in a literature program, so they were doing that sort of thing. And yeah, so my first uh, experience with, with Kurt Vonnegut was a friend sending me his books saying, I think you'd like them. And she was absolutely right. Mm-hmm. This might be a slightly unfair question because you guys just put out the adaptation, but like, would you suggest if anybody wanted to start reading Kurt, like actually reading the novels, would they start with Slaughterhouse-Five or what would you recommend? There's like... Cause yeah, it's... I say why not? Yeah. I mean, it's... um, I feel like... Like my experience with music, if you start with the greatest hits... Um, it can sometimes feel like diminishing returns because you're getting <laughs> less and less popular songs. Mm-hmm. But maybe just have like really normy mainstream taste in music and literature. I find 
if you start with the greatest hits, like you might love Slaughterhouse Five, then you read Breakfast of Champions and like that even more. <laughs> yeah. There's no sort of objective ranking of which which are the best novels. Not that there are for music either. Maybe that's a bad example, but there's definitely um, wiggle room and surprises in all of his text. So I would say, yeah, sure, start with Slaughterhouse Five, see what you like. Yeah, it's, take it from there. I've seen that thing now where like people are trying to like tell people how to like read Stephen King, right? Like Stephen King is like over sixty novels, right? Mm. So it's like <laughs> we're like it's really intimidating if you're like a fifteen year old or seventeen year old kid now, and you're like, all right, I want to start Stephen King in twenty twenty. You know what I mean? But are there are there wrong answers? Like if you start with it, have you have you ruined the future books, or are you going to be fine? Like I feel like you'll probably be fine. Like there's a I don't know a Babylon Five watching order. <laughs> That's because. You know, it's one long story, but Stephen King's novels aren't like that. So yeah, I'm for doing what you want when it comes to books. Look at that. Free will. Like you're totally opposite of the aliens. Free will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, read the Lord of the Rings books in any order you want. That's what I say. Oh, my gosh. Chaos and anarchy. Uh, I guess you're not thinking of the children at all. No. Uh, before we wrap up, this is a weird segue, but I got to talk to you about it because you recently tweeted my favorite Star Trek fact. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I do, yes. <laughs> My favorite Star Trek fact is that because the Enterprise bridge has this turbo lift to the side, you're talking about the original Captain Kirk uh, Enterprise. Captain Kirk ship, yeah, the yeah. Constitution class. Yeah, uh, has this turbo lift to the side, but that turbo lift is directly behind the bridge on the exterior of the ship. The bridge crew are canonically, I can never pronounce that word, sitting on a 36, thank you, 36 degree angle from the direction they're actually heading. <laughs> <laughs> yes that was your favorite uh or more recent star trek fact fun fact yeah i like it i feel like it's the sort of what i like about star trek in general is that you can always go deeper and find some crazy explanation for this and so the fact the real life explanation is that when they built the set they had the turbo lift door behind the behind the captain's chair it made it hard to film if someone was walking into the bridge so they moved it, but the model was already built. So just like a simple, you know, oopsie doopsie. Mm-hmm. But since it's Star Trek, everything has to make sense. And so you can get these blueprints that show that the bridge is at a 36 degree angle to make everything match up with the exterior of the ship. And it doesn't really need to be forward, right? Because you're on a spaceship and the view screen's not a window. You can face any direction. <laughs> yes. So it makes sense, but it's also like kind of irritating. <laughs> Why would they be at a 36 degree angle? None of this makes sense. But now it all snaps into place. It's sort of like deep dive Star Trek. And half the replies on that tweet were people saying, I wish I'd never seen this. And then the other half saying, this is amazing. <laughs> I guess at that point in the future, they don't believe in Feng Shui anymore, like arranging the room or the Star Trek. Like the... Maybe they do. And that's why it's 36 degrees off the center line of the bow of the ship. <laughs> oh, yeah. That makes sense, actually. All right. Yeah. So... Where can people find you online to talk about London Fog recipes and Kurt Vonnegut novels and dope Star Trek fun facts? That sounds like a good afternoon to me. You can find me uh, (laughs) on Twitter. It's at Ryan Q North. And I have a website linking to that and all my other books, which is RyanNorth.ca. And now that Slaughterhouse 5 is out, do you have a follow-up or uh, something else that you're working on that you can talk about in public? I have other stuff I'm working on, but nothing in public yet. Uh, I mean, if you're if you're hungry for more Ryan North comics, I'm doing a Power Pack miniseries with Marvel that's coming out right now. First issue just came out. There'll be five more throughout the next uh, six months, I believe. That's going to be off. a blast to go back to those guys. It's lots of fun, yeah. 
did you read a lot of Power Pack like uh, to, like in, pr- in preparation for this and like go back to some of the old school comics? Yeah, I did. I started with the old school comics because I <laughs> much I want to be the guy who's not screwing up Vonnegut. I also want to be the guy who screws up the Power Pack. So you got to do your research. <laughs> yes, that's a lot of pressure, right? Kern and Vonnegut and Power Pack. <laughs> it's amazing. Don't mess them up. Yeah, it's amazing you can get out of bed and like still function and like still make London <laughs> Fog. Like That's a lot of tension. Yeah. Um. That's great. Uh, we're done. I think we covered uh, a bunch of the big hits. And uh, is there anything else that we missed? No, I think we got it. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan, for uh, making the time and like hanging out. And uh, and congratulations on the graphic novel. It really is. Uh, like you guys. Uh, you and our like you guys did a great job. Like the art looks great. The story and it's just it's a visual. It's a totally different visual experience, right? Like if you read the novel. You get something different. It's like when you watch like a movie adaptation or something. You know what I mean? Like you're in, a, you get to see the world that Kurt kind of envisioned, and you get to inhabit That's it. That's very kind. Thank you. That's what we're shooting for. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you you did a great job, and uh, appreciate it. So yeah, once this is all, once this whole pandemic thing and lockdown is done, I do want to come over for London Fog. I gotta try one of these with the maple syrup now. You've tempted it's a day. me. So uh, <laughs> keep. Her- Keep perfecting the recipe, and I'll uh, hopefully drop by in time. So thank you. Sounds good. All right. Have a good day. You too. Really appreciate it. That was a fun chat. Like, I think you guys did a great job. But, yeah, it'd be interesting to see, like, what different writers, different artists and stuff. You know how it is with comics, right? Like, and that's, again, you just got conditioned to it, right? Or, like, when this writer gets hired, you're like, oh, that's amazing. Or, like, this artist is on there. I'm like, oh, that's terrible. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, with the those runs and you have those debates and those emotions. So, uh, Kurt is, like, there's a few people that would, I think, like, would really be kind of interesting and kind of uh, get into that stuff. Uh, so, I hopefully Boom is happy with uh, your work and hopefully the state is happy and they keep cranking this stuff out. As you heard Ryan North say, it's the joy of the tragedy of the book. I think that is it is this heartfelt an effective argument against war. But it's also a book that is as relevant today as the day it was published. The graphic novel adaptation is Slaughterhouse-Five, and I'm Sam Yunin. Which is fascinating, because as you heard in this My Summer Layer conversation, Kurt Vonnegut is pessimistic, yet he believes in humans. That's fascinating tension. There's always this hope we'll get it right, right? For as much nastiness we generate, we humans are also capable of great goodness as well. The human condition in our history is complicated and often filled with moments of cringe. Typically for us, cringe is prompted by a high school haircut or the memory of a terrible date. Yet broadly, collectively, cringe is prompted by World War II. Or rather, it should. But does World War II make us cringe? Slaughterhouse-Five is not the typical science fiction you seek, but it's good science fiction. There's a warning, like a no trespassing sign, which is often the best science fiction. Even though it's fun to ignore the no trespassing sign, you know once you go past it, danger may unfold. Proceed cautiously. You should proceed to your bookseller of choice and pick up this fascinating graphic novel. 
It's on many best of 2020 lists for recommended reading, uh, top comics of the year, so much more. They did an outstanding job adapting a hard novel, and as Ryan North said, it totally feels at home in the comic book medium. It works. I don't know why, but it does. Before I go, this is also important. If you have any London Fog tips and tricks, maybe a special family recipe, please, you got to let me know. My pal Sammy for Twitter, IG, and Facebook, all three. Reach out with your London Fog tips and tricks. Um, I'm going to try what Ryan North said for his uh, what his suggestion at the top of this episode. That's amazing. So uh, I think every episode should just end with a London Fog. That's a good way to do it. All right. So, yeah. Uh, my pal Sammy for Twitter, IG, and Facebook, all three. Thank you so much for hanging out with me in a Netflix world. Anti-war, yo.